today's programme, fleeing Putin with tens of thousands of refugees expected here. We hear from the Irish Refugee Council on the scale of the challenges ahead. With our defences at an all-time low, is it reckless to question our policy of neutrality? We talk to the former military intelligence chief, Michael C. Murphy. What the Russian ambassador is saying about us in the Russian media. What will the sanctions imposed on Russia mean for consumers here? And Labour pains party stalwarts round on Ivana Batchik over the ousting of the leader. Good afternoon and welcome to Saturday with Katie Hannan. My panel today. Damien English, Minister of State for Business, Employment and Retail. Catherine Connolly, Independent TD for Galway West and Las Corla of Dáil Éireann. Gary Gannon, Social Democrats TD for Dublin Central and member of the Oireachtas Committee on Foreign Affairs and Defence. And Independent Senator Gerard Crockwell. You can text us on 51551, email saturday at rte.ie or you can tweet to at Saturday RTE. Now, as you heard there in the bulletin, we're hearing reports that the evacuation of Mariupol in Ukraine has been suspended after Russian forces broke the agreed ceasefire and began shelling the humanitarian corridor. Back home, Taoiseach Michal Martin has announced that the government is working with the Irish Red Cross to create a register for people to offer skills or accommodation to support Ukrainian people arriving in Ireland. He said that secretary generals of all government departments are meeting once a week to scenario plan for something we have never experienced before in scale or volume. And of course, you heard there in the bulletin as well that the requirement for COVID certs and passenger locator forms has now been dropped to make it easier for Ukrainians to enter this country. Uh, we know 600 people have arrived here from Ukraine in the last week. Uh, Minister, Minister Damien English, what's the thinking now in terms of the numbers we could be looking at? Um, well, I mean, already the numbers are probably over a thousand. If you're taking yeses figures as well, so you're you're right up until yeses, about six hundred. Now it's over a thousand. Um, we know that potentially, I mean, there's over a million people have have been displaced already at European level. Um, it's if you, one point five million, one, I think, correct, was the figures and, today. And it's, it's probably easily going to go to possibly seven million, up to ten million. Um, we do know that that. At this moment in time, people are coming here of their own accord, but then that will become more coordinated through European levels. And if it goes into that, then there'll be percentages allocated to every country, at least. And that could bring us into the 20,000 plus um, number of people could end could end up here. It could be more than that. It could be less. We have to plan for different scenarios. But I think it's but, right. But the 20,000 would be if it, if it was just at a million. But but are we looking at th- seven times that, that, that That's number? why I said 20,000 at least. But first of all, Kate, I think, I think it's right that Europe has opened its doors. Uh, to our Eastern European neighbours. I think we all agree with that. Anybody I speak to from, from around, around the country would say this is an important response, first of all, building on the sanctions, building on the supports, that this is the next move that would make it easy for people from Ukraine to come uh, and live here and work here uh, temporarily uh, or uh, into the medium term as well. Now we have to coordinate that and we have to recognise that's going to be a logistical uh, situation to manage high numbers, 20,000 or 20,000 plus. We have to manage that and it'll be coordinated with all our agencies, including the Red Cross, as a first response. Oh. And I do know, and I to say I want to compliment the Irish people there's numerous people coming forward offering accommodation and that may be needed in the short term but we also have to put in place long term plans here because we don't know how long this is going to go on for yeah, it's well, the right thing to do but it's not going to be easy of course uh, 700 pledges made so far the, the Red mm. Cross told us just before we came on air um, that's pledges of a room or, or a vacant Correct. property that yeah. might be available to a, a fleeing family but we're going to need Thousands and thousands. C- correct, Katie. So and, and we have to plan for that. Uh, and, you know, the, the, what the, the number we, we, we don't know yet what we will need, but we have to plan for all scenarios. I mean, this is getting extremely serious. Each day moves on, the war is getting worse in Ukraine. And we will deal with that. 
yes, I've, even this morning, I've had four or five families came to me to offer their accommodation. So we have to be, through the Red Cross, we will capture that and be able to manage those offers. But they, again, may not be the permanent solution we need, As in, but they're a good, quick response. But okay. we have to put in place. So we will be using, looking at vacant properties, we'll be looking at hotels, other forms of accommodation, temporary accommodation, and more structured long-term accommodation. We will be able to use emergency powers if need be on the planning laws and on the supports coming through Europe as well to respond to this. But I think... When you say you emergency know, powers, to do yeah, what? So, so because this is a war brings in an emergency situation, there, there will be, if need be, you'll be able to use emergency planning powers to, 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 to develop temporary housing solutions quicker, if need be. Is this the modular homes that, that we're talking it's, about? It's, I, and what I'm saying is, uh, Katie, we're at the, this is at the very early stage of working this out. I'm just saying you have the option to use emergency, emergency planning powers that you wouldn't have in other situations. Uh, we've, been used, we've used them before in response to, 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 to um, making available accommodation around the city for homeless people as well. So we, we can use those powers and we will, if need be. But this has to be all worked out. I don't have all the answers for you today. Nobody could have. But we will plan a response here and we will step up and already our doors are open and we're taking people in. Uh, okay, and I want to go to the panel, but I, I want to bring in first, I want to go to uh, Nick Henderson, uh, who is CEO of the Irish Refugee Council. If you put on your headphones uh, there, please. Uh, Nick, you met with government yesterday. Um, what were you hearing from them and, and what were you telling them? Yeah, so we were hearing from them that they're doing a lot of things. And as Minister English just said, they're, they're trying to create as much uh, additional accommodation, uh, particularly temporary accommodation, so that when people arrive at Dublin Airport who don't have uh, community members or family members that they can uh, access or stay with, people can get hotel accommodation where they, where they can stay, uh, which is good. Um, Currently, there is not uh, within the mainstream direct provision system or elsewhere any capacity for people to stay. We already have around a thousand people in emergency accommodation uh, and there's almost 2000 people in direct provision who have status but can't leave because of the housing crisis and difficulties there. So it's imperative uh, that we all try to access and identify additional sources of of accommodation in various ways. Uh, But the critical issue will be, and it was really positive to see the government saying this very explicitly this week, that somebody, a Ukrainian who arrives, who needs accommodation, will get that accommodation at the airport. So one of the things we're trying to do with all the queries we're receiving is to, to, to relay that back to people. Some people don't need accommodation. They may have a family member that they can go to, uh, but a, a good proportion, I'd say at least two-thirds of the queries we've received, people are stating that they need, uh, at least uh, for a period of time, and that, by that I mean weeks, uh, accommodation to stay in. There is a programme already in place, isn't there, Nick, for Afghan and Syrians uh, who have put up, been put up by families here in recent yeah, years? Indeed. So we have a programme called Community Sponsorship. Uh, more than 25 families have, have, have been supported that, by that programme and that involves uh, communities coming together, uh, identifying accommodation where a, a refugee family could live and then supporting them for, for up to two years. That's a really positive programme. Uh, but let's also bear in mind that it, it's quite a rigorous programme. So a, a community would uh, apply to, to participate in the programme. They would undertake training. They'd be supported by an organisation like ours and, and other organisations across the country that we work with. We believe that this programme can be adapted to 
to support Ukrainian people. And it's clear that both in a, in a register that we have running, the Red Cross, and, and other organizations receiving pledges, it's clear that Irish people want to get involved. But it is also, let's bear in mind, uh, a difficult, not necessarily a difficult process, but one that requires commitment over a period of time and supporting refugees who, who up until 10 days ago were living their lives and have, have literally had to leave the, 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 their homes with maybe a couple of bags and a boot, uh, a filled boot in the back of their car. As you say, this the, 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 the system that's in place to, to enable these families who, who previously mm. have, have fled from other war zones is quite rigorous in terms of vetting processes, in terms mm. of ma- ensuring that there's wraparound services available yeah. for, for those. I mean, the possibility of scaling that up from 25 families to tens of thousands of families, is it does seem to be it, it, quite the it, ask. It, it's certainly an ask, no doubt, but I think it can be done. Firstly, I think it needs resources. Um, so organisations that are facilitating this including ours and others across the country would have to be supported to do this. Having a central portal to offer accommodation is a, is a good thing, and I think the Red Cross is stepping, uh, stepping forward with this. Um, then we could also pivot the program, reduce slightly the, the, the controls, um, and have something like what we have in the, what exists in the UK, which is called uh, uh, Rent-A-Room, um, Refugees at Home. Uh, and they have a scheme which is slightly less intense than a, a long-term community sponsorship process, which is up to two years. Bearing in mind also that a lot of the queries that we're seeing, people are saying, I need accommodation, but I, I, I'm pretty sure I can get on my own two feet within a, a reasonable period of time. Um, so it may be that critical piece, maybe weeks or up to six months that people need support. Um, but it is no doubt, uh, there is no doubt, as you say, Katie, that we're going to have to to pivot and resource uh, the community sponsorship program if we are, if it is going to be able to offer a meaningful uh, amount of accommodation to support people. Yeah, and, I'm, and you're nodding along here, Damien English, but I'm thinking in terms of psychological support for, mm-hmm. for families who have just gone been through the most horrific trauma and also basic things like medical um, facilities and schools for, for all these children. Look, Katie, we have to be honest with ourselves here. This is going to be an immense challenge, uh, but it's, it, we all agree it's the right thing to do and we have to make this work. We've proven over the last two years as a country, as a nation, we can pivot and we've, right through COVID, we, we, we've pivoted many times right across community services, businesses, families' lives. We've changed and adapted quite quickly. That now has to happen again. The world has changed over the last week. We now have a war on our doorstep and we have to be able to respond to that in a humanitarian way. That's what we're good as Irish people. We'll make this work. It will need logistical nightmares and need all departments working together. The teacher goes to very broad to keep people together at a meeting this week and that will continue probably on a daily basis in the weeks ahead as we plan and adapt to this. It doesn't mean we've all the answers day one, but we will make make this work. We have to. I will, and and I'll, I'll, just before I let you go, Nick, I just want to put this to you because something that you have just said there that, you know, the world has changed and we, we put our mind to this, we can. But doesn't that indicate that we, we could have done a lot more for the people we had here uh, for, for a long time? And are we now in danger of creating two, a two-tier system of refugees, two different status refugees? And, and how can we stand over that? Yeah, I think a lot of people living in direct provision um, will be looking at this and thinking, wow, what, what, this is what we can do. Um, and it, 
it's interesting that the, the United Nations very strongly criticized European Union refugee policy just a week before Russia invaded. Uh, but I'd also like to think there's a, a lot of solidarity uh, amongst people seeking asylum across uh, Europe with Ukrainians. Uh, Syrians, for example, would be looking um, at uh, what's gone on in Ukraine and, and, and seeing that's, that, re that reflects what they've experienced. And let's not forget as well that the Russians uh, have a presence in Syria and are probably responsible for up to the loss of life of up to 20,000 people. So I think it shows uh, what's happened in the last couple, last 10 days that really refugee law has changed and for Ukrainians has changed in front of our eyes. Uh, and let's work through this, but use the positive things that have happened um, and I hope will continue to happen to support all people uh, fleeing war and persecution. Okay, okay. Nick Henderson, CEO of the Irish Refugee Council. Many thanks uh, for that. I'll let you go there. Uh, can I bring in you, Catherine Connolly, uh, from our studio in Galway? Listening to the minister there and listening to, to Nick Henderson there, would you have concerns about our capacity to cope with what's coming down the tracks here? Um, I, I welcome the efforts and I welcome the announcement from the government that we're going to do something. I certainly welcome that. Have I, first of all, we're facing a humanitarian crisis and we, I welcome that we have an open door policy in relation to that. Will it be a logistical nightmare? Absolutely, in my opinion. And I think the CEO of the Red Cross has pointed out the existing problems that we have with over 2,000 people alone, in addition to those who haven't got status, 2,000 in direct provision with status and they can't get out and 1,000 in homeless accommodation. So without a doubt, it's a logistical nightmare that's before us but we've no choice but to do, try and deal with that as best we can. I think the people of Ireland have a sense of sadness, anger frustration but most of all they want to do something to help and I, I think the register is a good idea so that on that practical side uh, I think we're responding to what people want in Ireland Okay, uh, There's a bigger debate here in relation to how we treat refugees generally and we can we can do this now, and it's right. But yet we have not done it up till today in relation to refugees. Absolutely begging to get in. And I just checked the papers today, and alone sixty people have died in the Mediterranean in January, attempting to get in to Spain. And and um, there's a, a, a Spanish enclave in North Africa where they're climbing fences, literally, and some dying en route, some dying drowning. And we, we ignore that situation and lots of other situations. But maybe we'll get a chance to come back to that. But Indeed. on the practical mm -hmm. side of okay. welcoming refugees from Ukraine, we have no choice but to do that. Indeed. Uh, Gary Gannon. Yeah, I think the point that Catherine makes is very relevant there in terms of how we previously treated refugees attempting to get here. But now I think it's the time to get it right. I think the Irish people are very decent, as being pointed out. We want to get this right. I think there's a challenge coming our way. We need to be able to meet it. I'm very conscious of the minister talking about we won't have a plan on day one, and that's perfectly understandable. But will we have a day two? Will we have it by the end of next week, the week after? Because, I mean, there is a flood of people coming here. They need to be given provisions, accommodation, school, healthcare, um, being trauma-aware for when the people arrive to us. I mean, that needs to happen very, very quickly. There should be cross-party supporting it. This should not become an issue of political division. I think we should all be involved in that. Um, but we need to get it right very quickly. Yeah, uh, uh, Jared Crockwell, uh, would you be concerned about uh, legal challenges here? 
Um, thank you, Katie. Uh, I'd be concerned about legal challenges. I would because we are now developing a two-tier system for refugees in the country. Remember, those who ran from Afghanistan and from Syria have exactly the same issues as those that are coming from Ukraine, albeit that Ukraine is currently in the middle of a war. But I also believe that the numbers we're hearing from the minister today uh, give me some rise for concern. You mentioned yourself, Katie, we could be looking at as many as 7 million people crossing into uh, Europe from Ukraine um, and if that happens our quota is likely to be somewhere between 140 and 160,000 refugees and that is mm. such a massive logistical problem uh, that I think I, I, I really admire what the Minister has been saying now there is planning being put in place but I think we need to be realistic with the population we could be looking at up to 160,000. Do, do you acknowledge Minister that that is actually a very realistic possibility now from what we're hearing is coming. Uh, well Katie two things I'd say first of all we, we, we can all agree here we don't know the numbers so there's no point in trying to kid ourselves we don't know the numbers but we have a duty here to respond to whatever whatever number of people arrive here looking for assistance. We do know that we're one of the furthest countries away so why, why will we allocate a certain number of people all the families might not come here. A lot of the families that have come here already out of the thousand I think only about a hundred or so of them have actually looked for we'll say, kind of refugee status. Have the, we the any sense haven't. of will people will families be sent here? Because obviously yeah, well that, they may that, have that, a greater That's the point you know, I'm making when, when Europe when, when, again when, when you end up with a policy we said at a European level coordinated in terms of percentages numbers can be sent here. But that's happening. We've offered to take other numbers before and the same families haven't, haven't always come here because mm. they still have a choice of where they will go. We have to be ready to take that. We have to respond to that. And and again, people okay. are saying, what's different to this in other countries? Ukraine are our are, are Eastern European neighbours. They have been part of an EU neighbourhood partnership alliance already over the last couple of years. They're very close to us. Uh, and so, we, you know, and, and they, they have also applied to, to, to join the EU. So th- th- there's a different response here because we had an EU directive that hasn't been used before, which allows us and, and now means that our doors are opened. People can from yeah, but Ukraine that directive has been in place for nearly 20 Correct. years. Correct. And I'm saying it's now, it's now in place. It's been used. And we, under that directive, we can respond uh, in a much more proactive way well, than we would I'm, have I'm sure past, people who fled, yeah, you know, that's, what, what, that's what, fine, what but we need to focus on what's happened today, which is a, which would, is a war would very very much would, yeah. would, would, would take issue with, we, with some of that minister. We should consider the, uh, today getting somebody into Cullen Barracks in, in Athlone and various other mm. buildings that have been locked up yeah, so, and so, get them ready. Yeah, yeah. so, so that, that, that's what I said, I said earlier on. That we, in an emergency situation, you can use uh, planning, uh, different powers of planning to go into existing buildings that are there. They may not be residential, but you can change them quite quickly and other properties. So there are things we can Could do. Could you CPO people's private properties? That, again, when you go down the CPO route, that's not what you want to do. But there's plenty of available properties that you could be able to move into quite quickly if need be. But we have to look at this and a number of interventions. Uh, and of course, okay. tapping into families who are offering assistance and help, that is, that's wonderful. Uh, but that has to be done in a proper structured way as well. And that might not be, a, that's a temporary solution. Then we have to indeed. have more permanent accommodation as well. Uh, and just one other issue before we, we move on from this, uh, Minister. We're hearing that uh, Ukrainian refugees will have the right to work from day one. Yes. So is that, just to be clear about that, they they won't be required to obtain a yeah, work the, permit? The decision was made during the week by, by, at a European level that Europe has now opened its doors. People will be able to have their full entitlements here to work here, to have shelter here, to be protected in terms of social protection and so on. And that's, that is there. Without any further that, we'll work with my department this week. Yes, absolutely. That, that they will be able to. And we do know that in many cases, I mean, 
we would have had about 700 people would have applied for work permits from Ukraine in the past as well. There is a tradition here okay. and has been has been growing over the last couple of years to come and work here too. So yes, they would be in a position to be able to work here. Okay, okay, with no work permit. Okay, we'll take a break and we will be talking about uh, Ambassador Yuri Filatov after these. Saturday with Katie Hannan on RTE Radio 1. Now, the Russian ambassador to Ireland, Yuri Filatov, has told a Russian TV channel that Ireland is at the forefront of the European Union in staging anti-Russian events. He said Russian people had come to the embassy with reports of children being bullied at school and that embassy staff were getting constant threats. And he described the general political situation here as hostile towards Russia and everything Russian. I'm joined now by Sergei Tarotin, who runs Nasha Gazeta. That's a Russian language newspaper here in Ireland. Good afternoon, Sergei. Hi, Katie. Good afternoon. Does uh, what Mr. Filatov is telling Russian television reflect what you're hearing from the Russian community here in Ireland, Sergey? Uh, see, like, there is a number of points which is uh, mentioned in the field of uh, interview to the Russian TV. So, unfortunately, I cannot argue or I don't have any evidence about the stuff he's talking about, the embassy and the embassy stuff. So, like, there's a definitely kind of the protest, and I think this peaceful protest near the embassy happen about every day. But like even, and everybody knew that this, the uh, gate was painted. But uh, another point about the kind of fear and the bullying for the Russian speakers here, uh, I don't have any kind of. I tried to get evidence yesterday and today from the people from community and through the media and, uh, you know, directly through the Russian groups there. But I don't yet had uh, evidence that, uh, you know, like something happened physically in the school or the workplace. So, so, I, so, so Sergei, uh, this idea that children are being bullied in schools, that is not something that you're hearing from? I, I don't have I don't have any kind of evidence at the moment. So, like, even... Uh, I, I can't say, like, I, and I don't know where the of get this, you know, a message or this evidence that this physically happened, you know. Then let's wait. So, like, then maybe maybe it happened, but, like, we don't know yet. But, like, um, That's not I, what I, you're I, don't, I don't have, I don't have, I don't have any uh, kind of and po- uh, evidence that this happened. Sure. And wh- what is your sense, though, of how uh, Russian... Uh, families and Russian people living here. It, has it has life become uncomfortable for them? I uh, see. Like the the majority happened not in the physical world. Like it uh, happened virtually, and of course, like then uh, in the Russian group, or we are deleting a lot of comments, which is uh, here like abusable or you know quite harsh uh, when people start to to talk about it, even then. Uh, of course, like the, the media influence and the mental influence of this, what happened in Ukraine right now is quite uh, hard and difficult. And, you know, like when I, I talked before, then we had the news about Irish weather or something like that, people starting to chat about Ukraine again. So, like, uh, we are under very heavy pressure of the media at the moment. So not only Russian speakers... Yes, indeed. Will you stay there? I just want to put this to to our panel, um, uh, Minister. Like this channel that that Yuri Filatov mm. was uh, interviewed on, it has over eight million subscribers. And I know, even in context of the Russian population, maybe that's not huge. But to be for Ireland to be painted as the baddie in Europe, 
for, you know, in terms of anti-Russian activities. Like, should we be concerned? Well, there's two things here. I think we all know at this stage that, 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 that the ambassador's view on what's happening in the world and our view are very different. And to be very clear, I think it's important that we keep our heads here. Peaceful protest is fine. And there's another protest organised where I've said the embassy again today and we should continue with that in a, in a peaceful manner. There is no anti-Russian sentiment in Ireland. There's anti-government. The, the government of Russia is what I'm very clearly getting from anybody who communicates with me and extremely concerned with that and our, and our right to, to, um, to make that clear. But the ambassador, you know, I think we need to be... We need to keep our heads here, not rise to the bait of what he's trying to do there. Of course, our own Department of Foreign Affairs will, will deal with our, our response to what he said as well and handle that. But the, but he's, he was, again, trying to feed into a, a narrative in Russia. But it's, it does not reflect what's happening here, and we know that. But could we, it we, damage we us and could, could it, you know, make us a target? No, I don't. Well, I, I, look, I don't know. I don't believe so, to be honest with you. But of course, th- that's why the Department of Affairs will try to try to deal with a response to that. But we need to make sure that we don't add fuel to that fire. We continue with our peaceful process. I think is right. Uh, we're part of a European response here, which, which to me is immense over the last week, and I'm glad to see it. I'm glad that we are part of Europe that can respond in a very strong way uh, to, to to assist with Ukraine here as well. And the, Russia, the, the ambassador might not like that, or the, or the government of Russia. But we have to continue on with our work and hold our values. Um, G- Gary Gannon. Obviously, a lot of mm. a lot of calls for uh, Mr. Filatov to be expelled and yeah, sent and home. We were the first one to make that call, actually, in the Social Democrats. A couple of weeks ago, George Filatov sat in the Foreign Affairs Committee with myself, Senator Crockwell was there. He told us it would be insanity for the Russian Federation to invade Ukraine. That was in his words. Several weeks later, he didn't mention, no mention, actually, of any of the justification, the reasons. He didn't use anything about neo-Nazis or anything like that when he's very comprehensive speech was. I think he's, I think there's questions about the role of the Russian embassy in Ireland in terms of how many staff it has. In terms, it has 33 staff in the Russian embassy in Ireland. That's more than they have in the UK. It's more than you have in any other European embassy. There's been questions in relation to espionage happening there I think we need to send a strong message and I would believe expelling the ambassador would do that I mean this doesn't cut off diplomatic ties we can still have a charge a charge to further in terms of a um, ambassador's second that could happen but I think it sends a very clear message that we won't be dealing in the lowest the evasions of Putin's allies and Yuri Fulatov has been to the centre of that in Ireland Okay uh, you're shaking your head Sir Crockwell Yeah I agree with Gary in so far as we should reduce down to about four or five people. But the ambassador and the face of the ambassador is the embodiment of Putin in Ireland today. Exactly. He should be kept here and he should be constantly put before the people of this country. So he should. I wouldn't throw him out. We need uh, channels of communication open. Okay. And that's the way you do it. Ka- Catherine Connolly? <clears throat> well, what I heard the ambassador saying was that children were threatened and that would be unacceptable. But I think he has to realise that peaceful protest is a necessary part of any democracy. But if I may, I'd like to come back to something that the minister said in relation to our East European neighbours. And I, I'm very concerned at the nuance of what's happening here in relation to refugees. So he said there are nearest, there are East European neighbours who are very close to them. And suddenly the rules can be changed. Now, I spoke and said we have to open our Sorry, doors. Sorry, Catherine, I said there are very no, part j- of the just, let, just, just let me finish. Just let me finish because I'm in Galway and it's difficult um, and you have the advantage there in the studio. This uh, uh, very... The nuanced differences here is, is very unacceptable to me. Suddenly we can lift the rules, change the rules or apply the directive when it suits us and give a right to work to the refugees that arrive now from the Ukraine from the very day that they arrive. I have watched for 22 years the despicable system, the inhuman system of the asylum um, project 
and no right to work. No, very few rights. It took a Mahan report. It took a Catherine Day report. It took another report from the department. And we still really haven't acted. There have been some changes. It's taken 22 years and there's still not an automatic right to work. And suddenly we can change this in relation to some refugees. Now, I appreciate there's a war, a totally unaccepted war, war and, and an invasion of Ukraine. But we really want to start using language in a way that's honest so that we can understand what's been said and why rules change all of a sudden and don't change for other groups of refugees. If, 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 if there's a chance to come back, if we look at Yemen, I'm looking at the figures for Yemen and they're extraordinary. And do we ignore Yemen because they're further away? We have four million displaced Yemenese people. We have 10,000 children dead in a seven-year war. We have 377,000 and rising dead in that war. And there are many other wars. So I hope, Katie, that we get a chance before the end of the programme to come back to our role in, in this on a world stage and what is our role. Notwithstanding, of course, we have to give humanitarian assistance and give it as comprehensively okay. as we can. Okay, let- but we need to come back to what what is our role and what is our policy overall. Okay, very quickly. Yeah, I mean, English two points. Look, I mean, I, I'd agree with Catherine. There's many parts of the asylum seeking process that I haven't been happy with over the years either. There's plenty of good, positive changes made to that, and thankfully, they may not have come in time, but they certainly changed over the last couple of years, and rightly so. But in relation to the difference here, what I clearly said, Catherine, two things. Uh, a directive that, was, that, that hasn't been used before around Europe has, al- has allowed Ireland to change its response. Um, and and that, that's so there's, there's a European decision made here. Now we can make a plan, a different response here. But why is that? Well, I, again, and, and I'll just point so, out sorry, again Kate, that that directive has been in place for no, 20 years, yeah, so Kate, we can't no, say no, that it was just no, introduced. Kate, so no, the directive was there, hasn't been used before. Yes, that's what I'm clearly yeah. saying. So it was agreed this week to use that directive. We'll avail the opportunity now to be able to respond in a different way. Why has it been used? It's been used as a combination of a response to a, to a war in Ukraine. Okay. Who are And Ukraine, to be clear on this, are part of an, an alliance with Europe that have been over a number of years, a partnership as, as our as one of our closest Eastern European neighbours. So there's a different relationship there already. Okay, but th- building on that, this is also part of the response, building on sanctions and building on assistance to Ukraine. This is okay. the number three assistance by Europe. That's what this is about, to try to stop and push Russia okay, back I'm out just of watching, Ukraine. I'm watching the clock and as I say, that's a debate that will probably will not end today for sure. But I want to, you mentioned sanctions there, Minister. Now just before, if I still have Sergei, uh, Sergei, are you still with us? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, just yes, one yes. quick question, Sergei, uh, in relation to sanctions. Uh, in, in, you know, you, you have a lot of dealings with people here who would have maybe business links back with Russia uh, and, and indeed, you know, personal links back with Russia. Are they beginning to bite in Russia, the sanctions that have been imposed? Uh, see, like the business and finance more sensitive to the sanction they, and they react on it already, but... The normal people, you know, still uh, not understood, I mean, in Russian normal people who live in Russia, still not understood what technically happened. So, like, then I think they will realize they need a time to realize that they cannot take the money from cash machine or the price are going up then and uh, there's some product which they, they prefer to buy not available. So I just yesterday talked with some business lady here and she's doing the English classes and her clients in Russia think, okay, we maybe came in August. And I said, probably 
August 2030 or 2035. Yeah, indeed. OK, Sergey, I'll let you go. Many thanks for joining us uh, with that today. Uh, on the sanctions issue, uh, now we know, we uh, were hearing yesterday, more, more tougher sanctions on the way, uh, a ban on Russian ships entering European ports, possibly bans on coal, oil, gas, energy coming out of Russia. There's going to be consequences here for that, is there not? Uh, there's no doubt that there's consequences for, for any of the sanctions and we're, we're already have, are through three rounds of sanctions with a fourth round being discussed and, and will be implemented probably air, during the week, next week. That could involve uh, ex- extending the sanctions in, in relation to, 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 to the rest of the banks in, in, in Russia and the fund, funding there, to ships, access and ports. Uh, and that's going to affect trade. There is no doubt about that. That's, this has a massive impact. I know already through Enterprise Ireland, we've got 137 companies that we would, uh, that are our Irish-owned companies who trade uh, across Russia as well. This has an impact on them and many others. Are a lot and of those withdrawing now, pulling out? There's, again, well, if you look at so the, the, the trade in goods was about 500 million in both directions, but trade in services was closer to 3.5 billion. So it's quite an impact here. Uh, but, but apart from that, the impact is going to be on energy prices and on products. And it's, it is going to have serious consequences for us as a country. And again, it's the right thing to do to try to stop and push Russia back out of Ukraine. But it does come at a price. And we have to work through this again as a government as well but to assist the Irish people and Irish businesses okay, through I'll this just, difficult I'll time. hit you a two quick questions because I want mm, to keep yeah, the panel in, involved in this. But I just do want to get a quick question on you. That €200 Euro energy credit, I mean, mm. that's... Katie, I said at the start of the programme, the world has changed in the last yeah. week. So, of course, there's going to be changes by government in response to this. Yeah. And, and, and and again, that work has started during the week and will continue and you'll see decisions being announced by government in the weeks ahead. Like We have to accept everything has changed since that €200 Euro was announced. Okay. Uh, and, and But thankfully, the legislation is going through to to, to allow for that so we can use that mechanism as okay. need be or other mechanisms. OK, and, and the, the hints we got this week that uh, there might be a, a cut in excise duty at the pumps... Hmm. But then followed by, quickly by uh, confirmation that we'll have to wait for a European Commission paper before no, we to, move. To be clear here, there, there was no hints. There was a practical, honest conversation that there will be a government response to this. Uh, what way that will be channeled will be in conjunction with, with probably a European fund as well and European decisions as well. So we have to naturally... But we are going to... The excise duty will be cut. Uh, is that uh, what there, you're telling no, us today? No, that's not what I'm saying, Katie. Because I, I don't know, because that decision is not made. There will be a response to recognise that there's a massive inflationary measures here. And that will come in probably different measures, but that will be in conjunction with a European support mechanism as well. But that'll be... I mean, yeah. it, it, this is something they've been worked on. There's no point in me but kidding you. very importantly, when those yeah. new Gary. measures are brought in that they're targeted to 200 euro, the kind of the universal nature of it meant that... What was it, seven? Four percent of that five hundred million was taken up in that two hundred euro. The Vincent de Paul released a report two weeks ago called the cost of survival that demonstrated that people in this country at the lowest end, the hard cold face of this, were struggling to keep their gas on, were struggling to put food on their table. If there is to be renewed measures, they need to be targeted at the people mm-hmm. who are being more here. Yeah, and, and Gary, I think it's fair to say too, I think you will agree with me this, that, that people should not be struggling to that nature that we've but heard. But they are though. No, no, no. But my point was that, that they, there was other assistance beyond the 200 euro, as you know, and you can reach out for a, a, a exceptional needs assistance. It's, it's not a nice thing to do, but it is there and it's important that you and me and the rest of us but remind people that that service is there but of but course, course there'll be a response that reaches people who are amazingly no, it's but, not even close to yeah, being enough but in, in fairness so. you, you never acknowledge the service is there and we have to be clear on that. But yeah. what I did acknowledge was there's people in this country at the minute who are struggling to put food yeah, on we, the table. We all, and that's why there will be the a, a, an increased government so response. Me, I can't yeah. confirm whether it's we need extraordinary measures. We need moratorium on disconnections. Yeah, like we had during the pandemic. Here. Of course there's going to be a response by government. Are we looking at things like moratoriums on disconnections? The, well, that's always looked at, and that was, that was even looked at during during COVID. And in fairness, the energy company stepped up on that, and that, that was implemented. So, of course, it is, Katie. But but to be like, to be honest with you, these, we have to work out what sure. what can be done here to have the best impact for those who need it most. Catherine, and that, that will be done. Catherine Connolly. 
Getty. Yep. Yeah, just in relation to that, uh, what would you like to see or what you think needs? Like, uh, there was a lot of controversy about the universal nature of that credit, that energy credit. Without a doubt, we need a packet of measures and the government have gone some way to bring in a packet of measures. The That goes without saying. A substantial number of people in this country, despite social welfare, despite assistance, would not survive without Vincent de Paul. Simply wouldn't survive. That statistic in itself tells you something. And so if I go back just prior to this war, we were supposed to have a fundamental change in our society as a result of what we learned from COVID. It was said repeatedly in the Dáil by our leaders, there's no going back. That was repeated with climate change and a biodiversity crisis. We have to fundamentally change and we have a war on top of that. But things didn't just change because of the war. It had theoretically changed beforehand that the way our way of doing business based on the market economy simply is not working and we're in there is an existential existential threat to the planet as a result of proceeding with the same policies that have utterly failed okay. within that we now have the invasion of Russia. And I read the papers today with utter despair at what's happening on the ground in the Ukraine, but equally at the commentators that are writing in the middle of a crisis when we should be, as a neutral country, putting our effort into humanitarian efforts and diplomacy. There's absolutely no talk of diplomacy and this talk of getting rid of our neutrality by the Taoiseach, by the Thánaiste, by various so-called respected journalists in the middle of a crisis that we should get rid of our neutrality as opposed to analysing how did we get to this point and where are we going from here and what is our role? Can I I stop you there because that's exactly where we are going from here Uh, because I want to go now to Michael C. Murphy uh, who is a former Deputy Director of Intelligence with the Irish Defence Forces. Good afternoon, Michael. Good afternoon, Katie. Yeah, Michael, this question uh, of our neutrality and indeed the questioning of our uh, policy on neutrality over the last few days uh, is of serious concern to you. Yes, because we can have an argument or discussion in relation to whether Ireland is neutral, non-aligned or whatever, and that discussion can go on. But it would be very hard to argue that Ireland is absolutely defenceless. We, our defence forces has been destroyed over the last 10 years. Um, it can't even put its fishery protection vessels to sea. We don't know what's in the sky. We don't know what's in our seas. Um, so therefore, like even the whole debate as to whether neutrality or non-aligned is kind of moot. If you are neutral, then you have to defend neutrality, and that neutrality means defend neutrality means that other forces. You're not trying to stop other forces from getting into your country, but you're certainly trying to make sure that none of them are using your territory, your air, or your seas to operate or to conduct operations. Um, we're incapable of doing anything like that because the defence forces has been destroyed. So uh, the comments that, that Catherine referenced there from the likes of uh, Thánis de Leo Varadkar and indeed mm-hmm. the Taoiseach in recent days, that our neutrality, you know, is, this is a debate that needs to be opened, our neutrality needs to be examined. Mm-hmm. Unwise, in your view? Well, I, I would consider that what I would call fast food defence and security policy. Making it on the hoof, deciding there's a crisis in Ukraine. People like myself and others have been trying to advise the government for the last 10 years that there was the possibility of major conflict in Europe, 
that certainly in the South China Seas in the future, that our cables, the, the internet cables coming in from overseas are, will be in, in jeopardy. We could be put back two centuries if, if, if there's a war in the future, a European war. We haven't even put all our eggs in the same basket in relation we do one thing we do a commission on future policing and one we do a commission on defence and somewhere else we set up cyber defence somewhere else absolutely no overall security architecture there's no national security strategy uh, two years after it was supposed to have been put together it's like we the fire has started in somebody else's house and all of a sudden we're deciding oh we need to buy insurance and you can't build the defence forces out of nowhere. You can't train soldiers overnight. If you're going to be neutral, you need to be able to pay for it and defend it, or else you decide to join a military alliance. Because you can't just say defenceless. Okay. So if you join a military alliance, if it's going to be a Europe alliance, then uh, what are the consequences for us? Because there are consequences. Remember this. We're, if you're in NATO... You're supposed to spend 2% of your GDP. That's 2%. We're spending 2.7%. Um, Damien English, what Michael was saying there, and indeed what the, the Commission on the Defence Forces told us a month ago, that, that uh, we are currently without the capacity to conduct a meaningful mm. defence of this state right now. Then there's been a Fine Gael minister in charge of defence for the last 10 years. Mm. So can I make t- two points, Katie? Again, I'm not, I will remind you where we were 10 years ago in terms of money. But to be very clear, we referenced the Commission, and I was on the programme here about a month ago, it, it had just been published. Who set the Commission up? The Minister of Defence, Simon Copley. He set it up, I think, at this stage, is it, is it October 21 or October 20, to exactly do this, to have this focused, honest conversation of what we need in terms of in, uh, investment in our Defence Forces. And there's a couple of options set out there that have to be now negotiated by Cabinet and worked out over which option of those do you take. But that's the context to the Defence Forces. We all recognise it wasn't satisfactory. So wait, wait, okay. just bear that in mind. So that's, that's something that's number one. Three options. No, number two, there's four options in it, but number two then, in terms of the honest conversation, and you said that the Tarnashta and the Taoiseach are, 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 are this week began a conversation around neutrality. They didn't begin, begin that. That began, be, be, begin that. That reflects what Irish people have been saying for the last week. Where are we with a neutrality policy? The world has changed hold in the last minute, week. No, sorry, Jared. No, 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 no,
The minister I think Katie has, has chaired okay, sorry, debate. Can we, yes, I, I, Please, can, we just, can we just stop interrupting here? Yep. Uh, Jared Crock, will you acknowledge that what the Taoiseach was talking about was military neutrality, or uh, political, political neutrality, neutrality not, mili- you, not, you, not military. Political neutrality is a load of nonsense. There, as Michael Murphy said there, uh, there are two things we can be. We can be military aligned, non-aligned, or we can be neutral. This last couple of weeks, the statements by government, and people can look this up. We've been speaking for years, because I'm eight years in the Shannon talking about neutrality and about our attitude towards it, and we have seen our president, our government ministers, civic bodies all talking about Ireland's great neutrality. Watch how the language has changed in the last few days. We are now talking about Ireland being militarily non-aligned. This is a fundamental change in our policy regarding neutrality. And it was taken without any consultation with the Joint Oireachtas Committee on Defence. It was taken without any debate in the Shannon or in the Doyle. This is a fundamental change to our position. So where, where, do, where, where do you think we should go with this? My, my own belief is I'm at odds with Michael Murphy on this one. I do believe that we should be aligned at this stage because Absolutely. militarily everything has changed. <coughs> the HSE taught us that. Oh, you, okay, yeah, a, you're on that committee as well. I am, yeah. Ireland has a Gary. very proud tradition of intervention in peace. And actually, any sort of and neutrality gives us the legitimacy to go and do that. That's the role Ireland should play in the world in terms of politics. That's the one we've done well over the past four, six decades. And any form of alignment with NATO or any other force actually minimises that minimises that prospect. But we've got UN peacekeepers more, most consistently overseas. We've been than working with NATO, Gary, since 1999. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, Katie, we, we have to. What, what I was people saying the last week are saying, who will come to our rescue if we ended up in a situation like Ukraine? That's because the question. You've run the defence forces down so far. Can I make the point? Nobody changed our policy neutrality because nobody can. There's a triple lock system there. No individual politician can do that, Gerald, and you know that. So there's been no dramatic change. If there's ever to be a change to our position on neutrality as a country, that is an, a full national conversation. Explain the minister's had. position then. The, the minister, and you know this, and I, that's fine, I'm glad Katie confirmed that, referenced um, political neutrality versus no, no, military no, no. neutrality. We're not involved in funding military. Ireland and, and is not neutral and not going to be neutral. Could I come in? I wonder, Katie. Yes, very quickly, Catherine, please. Yeah, It's difficult to come in quickly on neutrality and maybe sometime we could go back to a proper debate on it. There is no conversation on neutrality. What we have here are well-placed statements from the Taoiseach, the Thonista and various writers in the middle of a crisis when our effort should be going into humanitarian effort. Mm. In relation to a neutral country, I absolutely stand by that policy. And as I said, I despair at what's happening in relation to... There's, a con- there's no conversation and you don't have a conversation in the middle of a war where we should be given humanitarian assistance and using our neutral voice in the diplomatic sphere. None of that is happening. And we're talking about alignment with NATO or going into um, a oh European army. All of this, we ran it and talked about it during the Lisbon Treaty. And we were assured that neutrality was absolutely yeah. sacrosanct. Nothing has changed. If I could, sorry. It's not legislative. A huge amount has changed. Language has been debased. When the minister, the junior minister, talks about a conversation, there is no conversation. Yeah, yeah. There's a yeah. demonisation of anyone who dares to speak out. Claire Daly and 
and Mick Wallace have given a detailed submission to the European Parliament and they've been demonised. They're even stronger than I in condemning the invasion of Russia. Do you support, do you absolutely support Claire Daly and Mick Wallace's stance on this? Just Katie, in relation to that, I took the trouble of reading their submission. I'm saying they're actually stronger than me, if that's possible, on condemning the invasion unconditionally into Russia. And the report, and the journalists have covered that in a manner that's despicable. What they didn't agree with was the second part of the motion that committed Europe to building up an even bigger industrial war machine. That's what they objected to. And they made it open from the day they were elected that they were standing on that platform. Can I confirm for the Irish listeners? The the Irish government's response to this so far has been one of a neutral country and that's where it stays. We have been involved in the sanctions. But I know know what what has been said this week and the issues have been raised and and your party leader has said that we must, we we will have to think about closer alignment. Because most people will ask us this week where where do we stand? But in relation to the clear day they're an embarrassment of the country and they'll have to be dancing for themselves. We'll take a break. Now, we just have a few minutes to touch on those dramatic developments in the Labour Party this week with the shock resignation of leader Alan Kelly as after his parliamentary party moved against him. Ivana Batchik was asked at the Women's Rally in Dublin today if she was going to be the next leader of the Labour Party. She said she's going to consult with party members over the weekend. And now, actually, we had hoped to have Ivana Batchik on our panel today, but we were told yesterday that she had decided not to do any media interviews ahead of meeting with the party's executive board today. And I should mention as well, Fergal Blaney has an exclusive story in the Irish Mirror today in which he revealed details of a secret Zoom meeting of party activists from Ivana Batchik's home turf in Dublin Bay South in which fears were expressed that the party could be wiped out due to the internal row over recent events. Party members queued up at the meeting to vent their fury at the way in which Mr Kelly was ousted, says uh, this story. And uh, Ivana Batchik is quoted as saying, I think it would be best if we saw as little as possible about all of this in the papers. Uh, so she didn't get that wish, uh, Gary Gannon. Uh, but she was nominated uh, at the end of that meeting to run for the leadership um, Given your position in the Sock Dems looking on now at, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some former, from, from your party leader's point of view, p- former colleagues, is it time to bury the hatchet? No. Katie. Reverse takeover? No, Katie, absolutely not. And this question of a merger with Labour only ever seems to emerge when there's some sort of crisis going on in the Labour Party and the Social Democrats are not going to be any life vote for the Labour Party. When the question is asked to me, I always have to remember why I'm involved in politics and why I became Social Democrat. Those cuts that happened between 2011 and 2016 politicised me, they politicised people who got involved in politics in response to them. So no, we can't be asked to forget about our kind of formations in terms of politics. We're one of a very clear Social Democrat ma- mandate. Um, we have policies that are quite different, but more than that, we have a culture that's very different. We have people in you have a culture that's very different from the culture in the Labour Party. I'd argue so, yeah. I think if you look at the people in our party who've come through politics, myself, Holly, uh, Jen, first time TDs, I think incumbency is very important on that. That probably wouldn't have happened in the culture in the Labour Party where people would have been able to stand in the front. We've got people involved in the Social Democrats who are impacted by those cuts 2011 to 2016. They're very different. Okay, uh, Catherine uh, Connolly, this is, of course, your originally your, 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 your party. Um, looking on now, where do you think it's going? Um, they picked an extraordinary time to have a leadership debacle I'd I'd say that as I said to your researcher I've been there done that I leave it to the Labour Party themselves other than to say that they picked an extraordinary time to do this and secondly I'm on record for saying they lost their soul a long time ago and I haven't changed that opinion and they left a vacuum in Irish society Um, 
just before we go, Damien English, do you think Ivana Bacic is the answer or even does she want to be the answer? Because we haven't actually heard anything from Ivana Bacic I, in I terms of her. I tell you, Katie, I'm certainly not going to get involved in, in picking the next leader of Labour. Look, my heart goes out to Alan to wait, the way this all happened. I think it's a difficult time for anybody in politics the last couple of years to be able to show your full potential. Uh, I, 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 Someone that I worked, would, would have worked with over the years as well and I always found to be very straight talking, frank, very passionate, certainly when it comes to temporary matters. Not everyone liked the style, uh, but I would have found it a very honest and refreshing style of politics as well. But that's, that's, their, that's their business and their choice. Okay, okay. I, I don't have time to, to call on you for this one, Jared. We that's have to right. leave it there for the day. Are you relieved? Uh, uh, that's all we have time for. Uh, Sean Maron was our broadcast coordinator. Research was by Andrew Fleming. Jamie Doyle was on sound. And the programme today was produced by Regina Henley. Stay tuned now for Saturday Sport with Des Cal and Joanne Cantwell. 